You're listening to the Insight to Action podcast. Uh, my name is Donna Jones, and I'm your host. I'm also my work is also involves bringing a different way of seeing things and merging that with awareness based decision making so that uh, breakthroughs can take place, particularly at the leading level. It's exciting because right now um, we're watching around the world companies exploring more and more participatory and collaborative forms of governance. Frederick Lou's book, Reinventing Organizations, gave everyone a lexicon of color coding. So now people talk about teal and green and orange. And so that that's nice. Not everyone fully accepted that, certainly not in North America. But at least it gave the organizational community a way to see where we were. You know, where am I on this map? Still, there's been a lot of skepticism about whether open participatory forms of government would work in the public sector. In episode 22 with Katrin Muff, I talked about, or we talked about, the Implementing Holacracy in Business School, Lausanne. Today, I'm talking to Laurent Ledoux, who, who's going to help us answer the question, can open participatory forms of governance work in the public sector? Now, let's get started by, by chatting about what, what did you do with the public sector and how did the whole participatory governance field become a passion for you? Well, the field itself started very early, but I did not really realize it. Uh, I started to realize that I was really interested into this when I I took over the management of a business unit within a, a large international bank, and I basically it felt like I I had to to give more autonomy to to the people I was working with. Uh, I needed to trust them in order to basically turn the the business unit around and make it more. Uh, you know, a better place to work and also uh, with a higher performance. And it worked really well. And a few years later, while I was still, uh, you know, transforming the business unit, I met uh, Frédéric Laloux, uh, who was uh, just uh, drafting his book. And we talked about it. Uh, so he gave me his manuscript and I was lucky enough to basically read it and make some comments based on my own experience. It was great because I realized then that it was, I was not alone to try to do those things, although I did not even know it would be called participatory governance. Um, a few months later, I was also lucky enough to invite Isaac Getz to give a lecture uh, for a seminar I was organizing. I, uh, every month, I organized seminars of philosophy for managers, and there again, I realized that what um, Isaac was saying was pretty close to what I was doing without being able to name it uh, liberation or reinvention. Uh, so basically there, I, I really became really hooked on liberation, reinvention, and so on. Um, and ever since, I, I've dedicated myself to it. And that's how, uh, after about six years in the, the banking sector, um, I had the, the luck to be appointed president of the Ministry of Transport in Belgium. Um, so basically director general for uh, transport. And uh, of course, based on my experience within the bank, I, I decided I would also try to do the same within the public sector. And basically it was, a, you know, a, a great adventure, uh, which uh, worked pretty well, in fact. 
we have to dig deeper in this one because you, you've, you've been walking into the two areas that are deemed the most challenging in terms of, of redesigning and rethinking governance, one of them being the financial sector and the other one being the public sector. So tell us more. Okay. What what happened? What did you do? What did you see happen? What were the what were the pushbacks or the challenges that you faced, and how did you deal with them? All right. So, first of all, I, I would like to say that there is no method. There is no standard methodology. Uh, anybody would tell you that. I don't think he's talking right. Um, what you need to do first is really to start to talk with people. Talk with people, try to understand what's going on, uh, what's going less well within the organization, uh, get a feeling for the organization. And then, basically, you need to start to, to act in ways which give people trust, uh, which make them feel included, which make them feel respected, uh, which make them feel that you want them to grow as a person instead of just as a professional. And so, you know, through those acts, you start to create a different culture around you. Um, and, you know, more and more then people will start to ask questions. Why are you doing this differently? And then you can start building a team around you that will be able to make those very simple principles uh, alive within the organization. So, you know, in a nutshell, what I do is to try to make sure that the very basic psychological needs of all humans are respected. I don't know if you know the self-determination theory of uh, DC and Ryan. But basically, the idea is that uh, those basic psychological needs are autonomy, affiliation, and competence, or, you know, the, the feeling that you are growing as a person. So, uh, once again, the only thing I do is basically trying to make sure that those three principles are alive within the organization I, uh, I am in. And I make sure that uh, every gesture every thought is geared towards this and if you do it on a continuous basis then people also start to to try to do the same and there is yeah i don't know some kind of energy which starts to circulate which uh, makes it authentic and 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 and, and attractive to a, a growing number of people within the organization so that's in a nutshell, what I try to do. Now, I know it may seem or sound fluffy, and to some extent it is, because I could not tell you, you know, in a systematic way what I do. Again, the only thing I really do is to try to live my job as a manager within an organization according to those principles. But more specifically, let's try what what I've implemented either in the bank or in the public sector or even in other companies in order to make those three principles uh, live within an organization. When we talk about affiliation, for me, it's showing respect to all people within the organization and to involve them 
in basically in all decisions when, whenever possible. So what, what does that mean? Is to first create what Ricardo Semler calls a, a why-way culture. A culture in which people feel that they can ask any question, even the most disturbing ones, even the most, you know, uh, annoying one for the management, and make them feel that any question is good, and that they deserve to get an answer. That's one one thing. And how do you achieve to, you know, to make this culture felt like this? Well, one of the ways, for example, to allow everybody to participate in the design of the strategy of the, the organization. It is also, for example, to open the executive committee of the organization. So, for example, what we did at the ministry at first was to just to communicate the agenda of the executive committee before the meeting and after with the decisions we had taken. That was a first small revolution. Secondly, we asked people to tell us what, which points should we take on the agenda of the executive committee? And then in a third phase, we invited anybody who wanted to participate to the management committee. And this led to, of course, to a different dynamic within the committee, uh, which became much more concerned with the daily problems of the, the collaborators. And it became also more strategic because we were more conscious of the, the real issues people were facing on a daily basis. Uh, that's one of the things we did. Another thing we did uh, in order to, to include more people was to adopt sociocratic principles in our meetings, of course. Basically, you know, elections without candidates, the use of little bells in order to stop people talking too much out of their ego, you know, things like that. Basically trying to adopt all those practice of sociocracy. What we did also was to make sure, in order to make people feel included, to be as humble and as possible with, with our people. So, uh, meaning, you know, always being at the disposal of anybody within the company, uh, not not showing any difference in respect uh, according to the level within the organization, according to the hierarchical level or whatever. For example, what we did, we moved to an open uh, desk policy, a flex desk policy, so uh, landscapes and so on. But what is very important is that we made sure that everybody would adopt it. So including myself as president or the other director generals, we would not have any office anymore. It's very important to make sure when you move in doing something like this, that everybody does it. So you respect the intrinsic equality of all people within the organization. In the bank, we, we had another issue, for example, was the discrepancy between the salaries of people doing the same job, because they... Uh, they came from different banks which had been merged, and so they had a different history and therefore different salaries. We knew that HR would not allow for an upgrade or a leveling off of those salaries. So basically what we decided together, collectively, is that we would use part of the yearly bonus for the team to correct, basically, the imbalances between the salaries 
of the different people. Uh, this was another way to show that we, 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 wanted, we wanted to be just and fair with everybody. And I think that the combination of all those, those ways of doing things uh, led people to feel, that, feel respected and included. So that's, that's one. Uh, and those are just examples. I do not claim that any of what I told you is essential by itself. They are just, you know, expressions of this principle, but it could be expressed in different ways in other organizations. Now, the second one, the, the growth principle, or what we did basically is to, to take over the idea of the sweet spot within uh, Gore. Uh, you know what the sweet spot is? Well, basically, it's the, the meeting point between the capacities of the person, the pertinence of the activities he or she is performing, and the pleasure he or she has in doing them. And basically, the idea is that HR's main task should be to help people to find their sweet spot within the organization. Okay. You might not always get it right, uh, you know, at first or uh, directly, but there is a commitment from everybody within the organization to help the others, including themselves, to find their sweet spot. I think that's essential. Another way to, to do this or to allow for people to find their sweet spot is to allow them to explore much more. For example, I had... Uh, commercial people at the bank who were supposed to visit potential clients. Uh, we had, for example, a hospital is our client. But I told them, don't just visit the CEOs or the CFOs of hospitals. Uh, try also to visit doctors, patients, uh, whatever. I mean, to try to understand what's going on within those hospitals. What do they need? Uh, and just broaden their horizons, you see? That's one thing. And in the same way, we also suppressed the fixed list of training within the bank or within uh, the, the ministry. We said, basically, tell us the type of things you would like to, to be trained in. Uh, and it might be different for everybody. It's okay. Uh, we'll see if we have the budget, if we can uh, allow for it. Well, but we, we do our best to develop new skills. What we did also was to quite drastically review the way we, we gave feedback and evaluation. Less formal feedback and more regular, descriptive, positive, informal feedback to people. To make sure that, making sure that the various managers understood the need for feedbacks, were giving it, were also receiving it in a 360-degree fashion and so on. Um, so all this, I guess, gave the feeling to people that, yeah, they were not just, you know, trained to become better professional, but also to become a better person. And then the last one, autonomy or self-direction or self-management, whatever we want to call it. Well, first of all, you need to, to define the boundaries in which autonomy will be exercised. I think it's very important because there is no liberty without boundaries. If you, I take the image of a, of a fishbowl. If you want to free the fish, you won't basically, you know, break down the bowl because then what happens is that the, 
the, the, the water will spill and, and in the end the fish will, will die suffocating because there is no water anymore, because there is no bowl anymore. So what you need to do is to expand the bowl and to define broader boundaries in which people have more autonomy, but they still need those collectively agreed boundaries, which give them also some, some sense of yeah, community, uh, some sense of purpose, some sense of, um, yeah, of security also even. So that's something we did and we allowed teams to do so. Uh, at their level. We also, within the, the public sector, we, we did what was not common at the time, was to suppress the clocking in and clocking out. But in fact, we did not suppress it. We suppressed the obligation to clock in or clock out. And the difference is important because this allowed us first not to have trouble with uh, unions, but also it gave the, the feeling to people we are not, you know, pushing for something they don't like. We give them the choice. Either you get out of the system and you may later be able to get in, back in, clocking in and clocking out if you want. But you choose. That's, that's you. The only thing we ask you if you stop clocking in and clocking out is to define clearly together with your team members your objectives, the objectives you want to commonly pursue so that everybody agrees on what needs to be done and irrespective where you will be working from you will be working with them on those on those objectives and likewise we facilitated teleworking so homeworking up to 3 days a week which was also uh, uncommon within the public sector in order to facilitate all this we also moved into cloud computing uh, and it was also a first, at, uh, at least in Belgium, for, for a ministry. Uh, so basically people started to feel that we were treating them as adults. And you know, when you treat people as infants, they behave as infants. If you treat them with trust as adults, they will be wanting and willing to be worthy of that trust. Of course, there will be always a few guys uh, trying to abuse that trust. But then, frankly, um, my analysis is very simple. First of all, the costs associated with those people abusing the system are much lower than the costs associated with the frustration of the rest uh, because you treat them as infants and you don't stop controlling them. Uh, secondly, when you have that type of trust among most of your employees, the, the team will take care of the people who are not trustworthy anymore. And they will do it sometimes in a harsh way, but a just way. They will say, look, um, before it was okay, you abused the boss, but today you abuse us because we are a team. And uh, if you don't do your share, then we have to do more just because of you. So either you do your share or you get out, basically. And w what is nice also about all this is that you see that sometimes people cannot do their share for good reasons. I don't know, they have a sick wife or they have a, a sick man or a sick children or for whatever reason they've traveled at home and the rest of the team may cover that person for a while. Uh, but when they feel that it's not, 
you know, earnest, then, then they will also take care of it. So basically, when, when you do all this, you know, people who want to take initiatives, feel they have the capacity to do so, and feel they have the liberty to do so also. And incredible thing, things start to emerge. So, on one hand, impossible to describe exactly what happens and what needs to be done. There is no clear path, but I would say that the path is just to be guided by those very simple principles where you respect people, you make them feel included, you give them the autonomy they need within the boundaries uh, that are necessary and collectively defined, and you make them grow. You allow them to grow as a person. That's it. That's beautiful. Beautiful and simple in its, in its humanity. <laughs> thank you. you no, know, thank yeah. you. What is great, and I only discovered this very recently, it is that it's, um, it, it's scientifically validated. Those basic psychological needs, you can find them in all human beings, everywhere, in all cultures, whatever their age. So, you know, all that talk about millennials who would have different needs and so on than, than older people, I think that's just bullshit. Uh, what happens is that maybe the way they will fulfill those needs might be different. But fundamentally, just like plants, we need, uh, which need water, sun, and good earth, well, people need affiliation, inclusion, they need autonomy, and they need to feel they can grow. And if you give them that, they will blossom and your company or your organization will function. And in that sense, people from the public sector are not different from the private sector. So basically, you can do the same, uh, which doesn't mean that it will work exactly the same. But those psychological needs people need are the same everywhere. Wonderful. Now, I am curious because, well, there are a couple, I'm curious about a whole bunch of things, but one of them is decision-making. Did you distribute the decision-making? Okay. So it's, it's a difficult one because, especially within the, the public sector, you have a lot of rigidities with that. Before answering fully your question, let me tell you this. There are obvious rigidities within the public sector which make it sometimes more difficult to implement participatory governance than in the private sector. Having said this, what matters is not so much what you do, but the spirit in which you do it. And people will understand that there are constraints within the public sector, and as long as they understand those constraints, they will be okay with it. So basically, all participatory governance was less let's say, profound in a way within the public sector than in uh, the private one. For example, uh, because the hierarchy within the public sector, I was not able to change. For example, in, in other organization, uh, we are working on different ways to basically decide on the remuneration of people. That you can do in the private sector. If the team is a high enough maturity to discuss this openly and to review the way you decide, okay, do we, let's say, uh, allow us for a bonus, an individual one or a group one or no bonus at all or whatever, you can do that. In the public sector, 
so far you cannot change that so that's okay you live with it and you you try to apply the principles I mentioned earlier in different ways that's all so um, did I was I really able to distribute power and authority yes up to a point there were many things which I delegated or which I stopped to um, to decide uh, for example just to give you a small example uh, I was supposed to sign every uh, travel request for any member of the Ministry of Transport so every day I got at least 10 or 20 requests to be signed. Obviously, I was not in a position to know whether those travels were justified or not. So I said, basically, I don't sign them anymore. You organize this at the level of your teams. We trust you. If at some point some people abuse it, that's okay. We'll take measures then. But so far, we don't need to. So you see, those little things we were able to delegate. But then for other things, it was just not possible because the law said I had to sign it. Uh, and it would have taken me years to change that. Absolutely. There's always those those legislative requirements that you have to meet or whatever they're, yeah. But it's not so important. There, there are so many other things you can do in order to make those principles uh, alive within the organization. Fantastic explanation of what the process is about and I know we could easily go for an hour but we don't we're not we don't have an hour we've got a couple more minutes here I want to dive into what you're doing now because you, you've you've done a, an incredible bit of work in the public sector with with participatory governance and now you are in the you're a consultant well yes I'm a, I'm a consultant, let's say, I accompany companies who want to, to transform themselves in the way of Lalu and Getz and so on. Um, but I also act as a crisis manager, which means that uh, on behalf of the board, I take over the management of a company which is ailing. Uh, the, the difference with traditional crisis manager is that we do it in a participatory way. So basically, uh, the first thing we do is to assemble the, the team or the, the, the members of the company or we visit them on their site and basically we share with them the financial situation of the company, uh, which is sometimes not done by other uh, crisis managers. So we say, this is the situation, this is how it is, we will need to take difficult measures, we want to take them with you. We want first to try to see what can be done in order to save the organization. Uh, if we need to make some cuts, we will do them, but together with you, and we'll try to see where where they should be done. And it works. It works. Uh, yeah, it's incredible. You've done a few of them now. Well, I've done uh, one completely, and uh, we, we were quite successful. Now I'm starting another one. But the people I'm working with on this have done already 120 of those operations. And I think that so far uh, they've been uh, yeah, more, more than 110, let's say, have been fully successful. Applying those basic principles of trust uh, and the principles I mentioned earlier. Uh, even in crisis situations. Any tips you want to share with uh, the audience on, on how to move forward with participatory governance? 
uh, there, there is only one tip. It's to start to work upon yourself. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> that is the source. That's the source because the, it, it all starts there. If it, you know, at some, you know, when I started the ministry, I had this crazy dream that I would help transform the organization just by being there, by doing nothing else than just be there and try to share or, yeah, a positive energy. Of course, I didn't stop working and doing things, but the idea is that one, is that what will really matter in the transformation is not so much what you do, but what you are and what you try to convey by the way you are. And if every manager tried to do this, then fantastic things happen. Because basically, what it leads to is that you move from a high posture to a lower posture. A high posture is one where you feel like you, you are dominant and you control the others as a manager. And the lower one is where you are at their service. Uh, basically, we find the ideas of servant leadership and so on, which to me are very much connected to the idea of liberation and transformation. Actually, when people ask me, yeah, you talk about liberation of the organization, but liberation from what? I have a very simple answer. Liberation from the ego of managers. Well, I can't top that. That's incredibly astute and profound at the same time. Thank you, Laurent. Thank you very much. Beautiful. Is there a place you'd like to send people for more information on your work? Well, the website of Philosophy and Management, which is www.philoma.org. Unfortunately, most of it is in French so far. But you will find also some English documents, podcasts, and so on. I'm happy. There's a there's a gentleman who's just taken up Spark the Change in Paris, and I'll I'll make sure that he knows about this podcast we've just connected. Okay. So uh, so that would be next, which is exciting because Spark the Change started in London, then it went to Montreal or Toronto, Montreal, and now I see Paris has picked it up, and I think there's one going on in Australia as well. So, but at any rate, I I have to thank uh, give a big shout out of gratitude to uh, Isaac. Uh, gets for for referring me to you and doing the introductions i have a program with isaac uh, elsewhere on the podcast so you can uh, listeners can listen to that uh, anything else you'd like to add no thank you very much for uh, allowing me to share this with you and with your listeners oh that's brilliant i think we could go on for quite a period of time lots to learn from you thank you thank you very much Donna. Head over to episode 25 to listen to Isaac Getz's conversation on liberating organizations. You've heard us talk about that in this podcast quite a bit, in this episode quite a bit. Uh, other than that, I'd appreciate you sharing this and distributing it to people that you think might be ready for the conversation around participatory governance. I get excited about principles, I get excited about ethics, and I get excited about decision-making and leadership and blend those all together and that's why we had this topic today. So I hope you enjoyed it and would appreciate your support. You can reach out to me on LinkedIn, D-A-W-N-A Jones, or you can also find me on Twitter at E-P-D-A-W-N-A underscore Jones. 
and or on Facebook at From Insight to Action. Thanks again for your support and I hope you enjoyed the show.